This summer, I spent a few days in Northern Europe on my way to and from East Africa, and a few days in Amsterdam, and then a few days in Bruges in Belgium. And in both of those cities, it was fascinating to see the effect of the Reformation on these churches that were originally built by the Roman Catholic Church. Most churches had been painted white as a sign of the austerity of the Reformation, as um, a refusal to worship the images that had been painted on there as the reformers assumed the Catholic piety had been about. They rejected the images of Mary, they rejected the dark corners of the cathedrals, and they wanted these stark white walls that encouraged people to focus on their Bibles, to focus on their own piety. The reformers felt that the images encouraged idol worship. And in Bruges, at the old cathedral there, we were actually able to see where they've begun to do this restoration of the walls. And what are being revealed are these beautiful, beautiful images that had been painted over in the Reformation. In Amsterdam, we visited one of my favorite churches. It's the oldest building in Amsterdam. It's called the Udekirk, the old church. It's right in the red light district. It's uh, stark and elegant, and this grand architecture makes for amazing photos and a space that kind of holds mystery. I think it must be two or three times the size of the Grace Cathedral. At least it feels like that because, because of the white walls and the starkness. It feels so big. But it's no longer serving as a place for formal worship or regular worship. Um, now they have art installations that happen there twice a year. But it's a place with a lot of mystery. On the 9th of March every year at 8.39 a.m., it's eight, the 8th of March in leap years, the early morning sun comes down and illuminates the tomb of Rembrandt's wife. So it's an interesting space, there's that. And then there's also this really wonderful story <laughs> that in mid-March every year, Catholics arrive and come to the Utrecht to celebrate the miracle of Amsterdam that occurred in 1345 in that church. After taking communion, a dying man vomited the host. So he had taken the bread and he vomited the host. And when this, his vomit was thrown into a fire after he had died, the host, the bread, did not burn. And it was proclaimed a miracle. So the host was then put into a chest and installed at the Utrecht. And uh, it's no longer there. It was lost in the Reformation. But, but here was this miracle that happened inside this building. So it's a really cool space since 1345 till, up till the present. It's one of my favorite places to go. So this summer's art installation was my second time there. This summer's art installation was just fascinating. Um, I walked in expecting to see the, the normal open space that I had seen three years before. But you come around the corner and you walk in, and instead the entire church is bathed in red light. And the installation done by an Italian artist, he had put uh, kind of like a red cellophane um, material on the windows so that the entire church became a dark room. 
So there's a picture of it on the front of your bulletin that I took uh, this summer. Nothing looked the same in that red light. Everything was a little skewed. This artist had taken a church that had been whitewashed by the reformers and again transformed the space by making it into a place of literal transformation. In the red light, you saw everything differently. The church became a place to process, a place that could reveal something that was hidden in plain light. It was a powerful experience to have been in that place designed as a worship space and to have this experience of literally being in a dark room at the same time. I could have spent all day in there pondering the metaphors that were present, um, but this experience really reminded me of the words of the Apostle Paul, for now we see in a mirror dimly. And indeed, the experience of being in that cathedral as a dark room reminded me of what our human experience so often feels like. The light is dimmed and distorted as we live our lives day to day. And we so often just get a, a little glimpse, kind of a distorted view of reality. Our view is skewed by our humanity, by our limited perspective, by our suffering, by our location, by our privilege or lack thereof, by our family of origin. The list is endless to describe all of the ways that we can never really see the full picture of what's going on. Often we aren't really aware of all the ways that we are limited until life takes a turn, until we're confronted with pain or conflict, and we become unaware of how incomplete our viewpoint is. Suffering becomes for us a dark room in our lives, a place where things are distorted and we have to face our illusions. To push that dark room metaphor even further, suffering is a place of development, where we are submerged into a distorted reality so that something new can be revealed. We don't know what will be revealed, it's not some, but it's not something God has to manufacture or inflict us with. It's just a part of living on this planet with the brokenness and the struggle. And let us pray. Oh God, we pray that in the dark room of our faith and our lives, that we would have the courage to stay there to wait for the process to reveal in time your presence with us, to allow it to do its work within us. And may the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be pleasing in your sight. O oh God, our rock and our redeemer. So we're rounding out this last week of exploring Job. And uh, Ellen gave a wonderful recap to the kids for us of what this story is about. Job lost his 10 children and all of his animals and all his wealth, and he was inflicted with sores on his body. And he and his friends spent 38 chapters discussing why this happened to Job. <laughs> Their questions and discussions all circle around a logic that many of us are familiar with. 
Why is God doing this to me? Where is God? What did I do to deserve this? I can tell you I've heard these questions so often and asked them myself in moments of darkness. These are questions, though, based on a theology that many of us have received over time. They're based on a theology that theologians call retributive. The belief that God's relationship to creation is a mathematical equation. We behave well. God gives us what we deserve. That all makes sense to us. This theology works until you come up against random, inexplicable, and undeserved suffering like Job's. And then it falls apart. Who could have deserved the devastation that Job experienced, the loss of 10 children, the, the suffering in his skin that would not end? And most certainly Job, who had been an upstanding, righteous man, he did not deserve that. Nothing made sense to him Oh, and over and over in the discourse Job asks God to answer him, to help him make sense of this, to help him understand why this was happening. And we all have felt this when we have been in pain. And Job is right, to, as Brene Brown uses this term, to rumble with God. Job is right to ask the hard questions. Job is right to get in the arena and, and to have a battle over his pain. And finally, in chapter 38, God answers. God comes to meet Job in his questions, his questions that don't have answers. What follows is a passionate rehearsal of God's creation. God takes the forces of nature, the creatures large and small, the intimacy and the grandeur of everything that lives, and basically says to Job, if I created and am intimately involved with all of this, how in the world could you ever hope to understand the way my logic works? God destroys this idea of retributive justice and the idea that our lives are all about our own personal drama with God and asks Job to look bigger. It's not that God doesn't care for Job, isn't intimately involved with Job. After all, God expresses care for the tiny raven chicks. It's that Job is looking for his own personal justice without considering and being in the mystery and majesty of God. God answers Job's mathematical questions with a mystery. It is hearing this answer and moving into a faith that allows for mystery that marks a maturing faith. It is a faith that can be in the dark room and allow that dark room to do its work within us. We all know that, that children move from concrete to abstract thinking as they grow. You don't talk in abstract terms to a, a four-year-old that is reserved more for middle school and high school years. And while we may do that in all other areas of our lives, it is in this intimate area of faith where we often hold on to that concrete thinking. But God invites Job to let go 
and to move into a bigger world. In another part of God's discourse, God goes into great detail about the creation and relationship with the behemoth and the leviathan, the dreaded creatures of land and sea. These are like straight out of Jurassic Park or some movie about a great sea creature. And here is part of God's description. From its mouth go flaming torches, sparks of fire leap out. Out of its nostrils come smoke as from a boiling pot and burning rushes. Its breath kindles coals and a flame comes out of its mouth. In its neck abides strength and terror dances before it. The folds of its flesh cling together. It is firmly cast and immovable. And yet, God seems to say, the behemoth and leviathan, the monsters, belong to this world too. I cannot deny their existence for yours, Job. And Job is called beyond this tit-for-tat, individualized faith into a place of partnership and compassion with God and all of creation in the pain in the vulnerability, in the mystery, in the unanswerable questions, that is where God resides. And Job relents before the mystery. I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. I have heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now, but now, my eye sees you. As one commentator put it, Job goes from being an angry litigator to a reconciled partner. And this is what I think God is inviting to us in this complex and beautiful, difficult book. To know that we are a part of this world. We are a part of this world just as the tiniest bug is crawling along one of those trees in front of us right now. We are part of this world just as we are part of the pain of the violence in the synagogue in Pittsburgh. That is our pain too. The laughter of a child is our laughter. We are here in the mystery and the mess together. In our rush to make God so personal, which was one of the the outcomes of the Reformation, we want to make God our possession as well. But God will not be had. Instead, God says, come be in it with me, and know I am in it with you. Daniel Berrigan said, God has not justified his ways, but God would come forth. God did not justify his ways to Job, but God came forth. And now, let's take a moment to talk about that happy ending, where Job gets everything and gets back more than he lost. This is the ancient version of a Disney ending before Walt Disney took breath in this world. Now, I'm one of those who feels a little betrayed by this happy ending. It doesn't work out that way for everyone. We don't always get back what we've lost and two times more. I also think, though, it's a telling portrayal 
of how Job does receive, after his suffering, the goodness of life as well as his suffering. Job is generous. Job is grateful. Job is forgiving. Job feasts with his community. And Job becomes a feminist. Did you hear that? He gives his daughters an inheritance in a patriarchal society. So maybe I do like that happy ending after all. <laughs> this is the invitation of faith, to be with God in the mystery and the mess, and to know that God is with us, whether we are in times of great suffering or in times of great blessing. As we hold all of this, I'd like to invite Margaret to come and to sing the words of Job himself through the singing of I Know That My Redeemer Liveth by Handel from the Messiah. <laughs> 